0: Hi,
1: welcome back everyone. Thank you so much for joining us once again uh, with Dr. Adele Berlin with Understanding Lamentations. um, And thank you to everyone who's joined us throughout our summer spawn. Just very quickly, once again, I'll be promoting people to be panelists. That doesn't put any pressure on you, except it will allow you if you so desire to turn on your cameras and show your face, which we'd really appreciate. Um, And you'll also be able to raise your hand and Ask questions in that way. Alternatively, you can put questions in the chat here or in the comments on Facebook. Um, and I'm happy to pass those along. Um, but we do ask that you try to stay muted when you're not speaking. Um, thank you so much for joining us again. And uh, let's get started.
2: Okay, thank you, Chaya. Um, we're going to uh look at chapters four and five of Echa tonight. And um What we find, especially in chapter four, but actually throughout the uh, the Megillah in general, is the theme of suffering. It's, It's a central theme in the book. All segments of society are affected, young and old, men and women, children, leaders, priests, prophets, and the general population. And each person or each type of person suffers in a way that typifies them. Um, It's interesting to see the difference in in, uh, men and women, uh, because suffering is gendered. Men and women suffer differently. Uh, When it comes to women, there are two images uh, of female suffering, the wife and the mother. um, because These are the two major roles that women had in Israelite society, and they're the roles that they lost as a result of the destruction. The wife lost her husband, the mother lost her children. Uh, now, these can be real people or metaphorical images. Um, we saw the metaphor of the widow, the wife without the husband, uh, at the very beginning. Jerusalem is a widow. Um, and widows, along with orphans, represent the unprotected or the disadvantaged people. So. The widow image evokes um, a sociological status, not not a sexual status. Uh, The widow also has the connotation of being alone. Um, And so there's a double measure of pity that you have for a widow. Once as a non-gendered member of an unprotected group, and then the icon of female sadness and vulnerability a woman deprived of her husband, a bereaved and lonely woman, and that was the city of Jerusalem. Um, uh, The image of a wife, there's a married woman, um, can have sexual connotations, and one is unfaithfulness. Um, This plays off the prophetic notion of the adulterous wife, Israel as an adulterous wife in relation to God. It's a common prophetic metaphor for idolatry, for the idolatry of Israel. And you also had that in chapter one, where Jerusalem is personified as an unfaithful wife who has taken lovers. Uh, The lovers don't comfort her, they don't help her. Um, But for this misconduct, she is shamed by having her nakedness revealed. Um, And here, unlike the widow image, here there's some blame and shame attached to adultery. Adultery is a heinous crime in the Bible, capital offense, actually. So um, adultery has all kinds of negative associations with it, indecency and immorality. On the other hand, when it comes to the real women of Judah, there are images of rape, abuse, abandonment, the kind of mistreatment that is specific to women both married and not yet married. And these images, these these real life images, nothing is really real life, it's all literary, Um, but these images evoke horror, pity, and regret. Um, The other female image in Lamentations is the maternal image. The Judean mothers lose their maternal status by virtue of the fact that they cannot care for and nourish their children. Um, They become the antithesis of mothers. They become cannibals who eat their children. We had that once, we're gonna have that again in chapter four instead of feeding them. For mothers, this is the worst possible suffering imaginable. Um, I mentioned before that cannibalism is a conventional image associated with war but it's effective nonetheless. Men suffer in what I see as typically masculine ways. They lose power and physical prowess. They're no longer in control of their private affairs or the affairs of state. They're weakened from hunger and disease, vanquished by the enemy. They suffer mental and physical brutality. Just as the women can no longer feed their children, men can no longer serve their role as protector of the family. So suffering is expressed in large large measure in gender terms and it parallels the roles that men and women play in society. The poet's purpose in dwelling on suffering is in my view to make God see the suffering of the people with the hope that this will provoke a response him. The poet wants to make God participate in the national experience. The suffering that is put before God is the suffering of all the people as a whole and in its component parts. It is the suffering of the men and women, the old and young, rich and poor, elite and common. There's no limit to the suffering in in this book. Um, It's all genders, all ages, all classes. Um, In fact, the the hierarchy in which these distinctions are operative has been destroyed. I don't mean to say that the book sees an end to to its patriarchal system, the hierarchy uh, of class and and gender. Um, It actually, I would say hopes for its return. That would be a return to normal. The picture that we are seeing in these poems is one in which society has broken down completely. The rich are destitute. The leaders are not respected. Priests and prophets and elders have lost their roles. Ordinary people can't function as they should. This is a meltdown in life. Um, Everything has been reversed. Everything has been wiped away. And that's what the poet wants God to notice. Uh, We're going to see this, especially in chapter four, Um, and I think chapter four is the most moving of, of all. The main theme is degradation. Everything beautiful has been sullied. Things of priceless value are treated as if they're worthless. Precious and beautiful objects are metaphors for the most precious things, human beings. People who are like gold, like precious gems, have become as worthless as potsherds. The elite, accustomed to delicacies, are reduced to eating garbage. You see how everything is reversed here as well. Society's leaders, once as magnificent as coral, sapphire, have turned to dried up wood, abject figures, shriveled from hunger. Um, It's not only a picture of these individuals in their misery. But again, as I, as I said, the abrogation of all that was normal in Judean society, a reversal of fortunes socially and physically, it's caused by the ravages of wartime famine. Um, um, it's the famine of the siege that's, that's being described and its effects are described in realistic sequence in which starvation weakens the population. First the children who are starving, and then adults whose health deteriorates precipitously. Then the ultimate trope for starvation, cannibalism. Studies of famine note that the most vulnerable are children beyond the time of nursing. Children who are nursed have somewhat lesser mortality rates but nursing is very demanding on the mother and it's extremely difficult for her body to meet the extra nutritional needs. Adults do not die as quickly as children, um, but when they do, it's often because of disease brought on by malnutrition and unsanitary conditions. So it's very realistic on one hand, but it's very metaphoric and it's, um, it, it's a poetic rendition of the conditions of famine. It's the most graphic in the book. Um, the physical suffering is, 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 I think, extremely graphic, although it's metaphoric. Um, what makes it especially vivid is the use of color. Uh, color is one of the striking features of this chapter. Gold and scarlet, white, red, sapphire, black, Bright colors represent the earlier conditions, when people were healthy. As the famine progresses, the colors are erased from the picture, and all that remains is dullness and blackness. Another dimension of the chapter is heat. One can almost feel it through the mention of the dry and blackened skin, the parched mouths, and God's burning anger setting fire to Zion. This is the siege of the summer, the time of rainlessness, of baking sun and unrelented heat, somewhat like what we're experiencing now. There is no shade, no protection from God or King. So now let's look at chapter four in the text, and you will see some of these things specifically. It begins with Echa again. It's also an acrostic, as we had before. Um, Alas, the gold is dull, debased is the finest gold. The sacred gems of Nekodesh are spilled at every street corner. Now, you might think they're talking about um, actual precious stones, but um, when you get to the next verse, you realize. That this is not stones they are talking about it's people Ben karim um, j p s translates precious children of Zion. I would say it's all the people, it's not just the children it's it's the people in general. Benet is a more general term once valued as gold, alas they are accounted as earthen pots, clay pots, which were common. Uh, it's not only in, in now in archeological sites that people find potsherds. Clay is easily broken. There were potsherds all over the place in ancient times. This is the cheapest material. Um, the work of the potter's hands. Um, it's, it's interesting because it kind of reminds me of God as the potter who shaped the first person out of the clay of the earth. So the people are shaped out of clay, but they're like potsherds, they're dried up and, and broken. Um, even the jackals, here there's a little quirkiness in the Hebrew text, it, it's a Cree and a tanim, but it's really tanim, which is jackals. Um, Offer the breasts and suckle their young. But my poor people has turned cruel like ostriches of the desert. Uh, Jackals and ostriches were thought to be very unpleasant animals. Uh, Jackals are associated with um, unpleasantness. I think even even today, they uh, roam around ruins and they prey on things. And um, ostriches, which we don't think are so terrible, were thought also to be cruel animals to their children. This verse is saying that even the most despicable of animals takes care of its young. And then it says, my poor people has turned cruel. It's not that they've turned cruel. It's that they're unable to feed their children and it makes them look like they're crueler than the animals which were thought to be cruel animals. The tongue of the suckling cleaves to its palate for thirst. Yonet, um, and um, when, when the phrase, um, the tongue clinging to the palate, it is it occurs several times in the Bible. You might think that the child is too, too weak to nurse. What it means is the child is too weak to cry. When the tongue clings clings to the palate means you can't utter a sound, you can't cry. This is why I find this so graphic. The children are starving, The, the infants, the nursing children, can't even cry when they're hungry. Little children beg for bread, but none gives them a morsel. Not because they're mean, but because there isn't anything to give them. So here we have the children starving. And it seems that every time we hear about children, it's in connection with the food that, that they can't get, either from their parents, their mother, or from anybody else who's around. Now we go on to the general population. Those who feasted on dainties lie famished in the streets. Those who were reared in purple, uh, that is, who wore the the nicest clothes, the fanciest clothes, have embraced refuge heaps. It reminds you of homeless people in, in today's world. The, the, those who were the rich, the elegant, now are um, roaming in the streets, lying famished in the streets, and, and eating garbage. Um, the next verse has the word avon and khatat in it. Uh, which JPS translates guilt, it, it can mean sin, guilt, or punishment. Um, and I kind of like punishment here better, but it, it's, it, it has both together, sin and punishment. The punishment, the guilt and punishment of my poor people exceeds the iniquity or the, the, the punishment or the penalty of Sodom. Which was overthrown in a moment without a hand striking it. Um, there's a story in, in the book of Breshi about how stone was turned, turned over, destroyed instantly. The story of Lot and his wife escaping from the destruction of stone. Here, they're saying stone had it better than the people of Judah had it. Why? because their end came quickly without suffering. Judah is suffering for a long time. Um, We come now again to the people. Her elect, Nizireha, her uh, high ranking people. And here comes the color that I mentioned before. Her elect were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their limbs were ruddier than coral, their bodies like sapphire. Uh, these are the colors of, of beauty and good health. Uh, good health is often you know, linked with, with looking good. Um, they used to look wonderful. They used to be in, in, the, in, the, in the healthiest condition. Now, their appearance, their faces or their appearance, are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become dry as wood. This is, is, as far as I understand, an actual picture of of malnutrition and and starvation. You you know, your body shrinks, um, you you lose your color. um, and, And that's the picture they're describing here. Um, the the idea in verse nine is is similar to the idea about Sodom. Better off were those those slain by sword than those slain by famine. Um, um, there there were people who were killed in battle, especially the the people the the fighting people. And everybody else was in the city, besieged, unable to get food. Um, if you're s- killed by the sword, again, it's a quick death. Famine is a slow starvation, uh, and it's it's um it's worse. Um what do I want to say about here? Um Yazuvu Medukarim. Um the translation here is pine away as though wounded. Um, I would translate it, they, they, they bleed slowly. In other words, if you're struck by a sword, you, you bleed profusely. Uh, you don't actually bleed if you're starving, but it, the metaphor is you bleed slowly from the lack of the fruit of the fields. You, you don't have any produce. Um, By the way, the the growing, the agricultural fields were outside the walls of the city. The people go into the walls of the city for protection from the enemy. They can't go out to, um, to get the harvest, to get the fruits. They have only what's preserved in the city. And in fact, the enemy soldiers rip off whatever food they have. They don't come. They don't bring their own food with them. They eat what they find in the lands that they invade. Um, here comes again the, the cannibalization. Yede Nashim Rachmanyot. Tender-hearted, compassionate women cook their children. These are tender-hearted women. These are women, they would never want to do something like this. Um such became their fare in the disaster of my poor people as they were forced into cannibalism. Um, now we come to a, a familiar idea. The Lord vented his fury um, on, on the people, pouring out his wrathful blaze. Anger is hot, it's like a fire. Um, and it's the fire, both metaphoric and literal, um, that God is sending on Zion. He kindled a fire in Zion, which consumed its foundations. This reminds you a little bit of chapter two where God brought down the city. Um, verse 12 also it has a familiar trope. Um, let, let me say now, and I'll say it again when we when we read the psalm that I gave you as a handout. The tropes are similar, and they're used over and over again. It always amazes me how they can tweak them. How can they arrange them? How can they vary them so that they're always effective and they fit the context? So here is um, the onlooker trope. Lo aminu malchei eretz. The kings of the earth did not believe nor did any inhabitants of the world, kings and everybody else in the world, couldn't believe that a foe or adversary could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was inviolate. This is the idea that God would protect Jerusalem, would protect his people, his country, his his appointed king or dynasty. Um, Nobody could believe this happened. It was for the sins of her prophets, the iniquities of her priests, who had shed in her midst the blood of the just. The blame here is on the false prophets and the priests who did not conduct uh, themselves or their services uh, uh, properly. They wander blindly through the streets, defiled with blood, so that no one was able to touch their garments. There's a certain irony in saying that prophets, seers, visionaries, walk blindly through the streets. Um, The next verse um, continues um, with the idea, they are defiled by blood. That is, here they're saying they're bleeding from wounds or, or disease or whatever. But here, the idea is that the blood makes them ritually impure as, as blood does. You can't come into the sanctuary if you're ritually impure. So no one can come in contact with them. Uh, nobody can touch their garments. And in the next verse, it that suru tamay. They call out, unclean, get away, don't go near him, the people shout, don't touch him. They do this for lepers. This is this is this idea. These phrases is what uh, people used to say in ancient times about lepers, because you didn't want to come in contact with them. Um, and here, these people are like lepers. Nobody wants to have anything to do with them. So they wandered and wander again, for the nations had resolved they shall stay here no longer. The Lord's countenance has turned away from them. He will look on them no more. When God, when God shines his face on you, that means he favors you. He's going to take care of you. When he looks away or hides his face, that means he is, doesn't have anything to do with you. They showed no regard for priests, no favor for elders. Up till now, it's been a third person account. Now we have a first-person account, so you're getting this switch in perspective. Even now, our eyes, see the first-person plural here, pine away in vain for deliverance. So the the speaker now is among the people hoping that this will end and someone will come to save them. Um, As we waited, still we wait for a nation that cannot help. Here, they're not waiting for God to help them. They're helping for other nations, maybe Egypt, for instance, which was another great power opposed to Babylonia. Um, our steps were checked. We could not walk in our squares. Our doom is near. Our days are done. Alas, our doom has come. And he's participating in this. It's, it's like a waiting, a suffering. it. it, it It's they're waiting and waiting, nothing happens. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the sky. They chased us in the mountains, lay in wait for us in the wilderness. Um, This seems to be about escapees. There there were some people who could escape, um, but they were pursued also um, outside the city if, 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 uh, if they could escape. um Ruach apenu the uh, the the breath of our life, the Lord's anointed this is talking about the king, the last king of Judah is zedekiah sihu, and that's who they're talking about. He was captured in their traps, indeed he was captured um and he was um imprisoned his his sons were blinded in front of him, and he was Brought to Babylonia. Um, but here they're saying, our king was captured, he in whose shade we had thought to live among the nations. That is, we thought we would continue to be an independent kingdom among the nations, uh, living under the monarchy of, of our Davidic king. But the king is gone. This, by the way, is the end of the kingship. Um, the, the, the beginning of the end of the kingship happened um, w- before when the previous king was captured and taken uh, as an exile to Babylonia. And the Babylonians actually appointed who thinking he would be loyal to them, but he wasn't. He revolted, and that's what, what brought the final attack. Um, the end will also be a little familiar to you, the, the ideas here, uh, about Edom. Edom is um, kind of a partner with Babylonia here, and Edom is blamed. Well, the Babylonia is the major force, the major enemy. Here it is Edom, um, also in Psalm 137, Al-Naharot Babel. Rejoice and exult, fair Edom, lady Edom, who dwells in the land of Uts. You, to you too, the cup shall pass. You shall get drunk and expose your nakedness. This, of course, is ironic. They're saying, You might be happy now, Edom, at the fall of Judah, but your turn is going to come. You're going to suffer the same thing that Judah suffered. Your iniquity, fair Zion, is expiated. He will exile you no longer. Your iniquity, fair Adon, he will note. He will uncover your sins. This is the hope for reverse, where Judah is reinstated uh, in, in God's eyes, and the enemies are punished measure for measure for what they did to, to Judah. And we've met that idea. Before, okay, um, I'm going to go to um, chapter five now. And before I do that, I want to look at uh, find my papers here. Um, this Psalm 79, um, and maybe maybe the other Psalm too, 44. Uh, scholars generally make a distinction between lament and prayer. Uh, Lament is what we've been reading up till now. Prayer is what we're gonna read in chapter five. But I'm not sure we should make such a stark distinction. While lament mostly is descriptions about the suffering, the attacks, what what happened, um, I think that very often there's an implicit prayer. In other words, the reason for saying, "Well, this is you," you want to get God to stop it, but prayer is is a direct uh, plea to God to to stop what's going on to save the people. So let's look for a minute at Psalm seventy nine, which again has many of the same tropes and ideas that we found, it's also about the destruction of Judah, um, but it's it's a prayer. Um, It it starts out, oh God, the heathen, the Hebrew is goyim, so you could say the nations or the heathen nations have entered your domain, defiled your holy temple, and turned Jerusalem into ruins. Contrast this with chapter two, which blame God who destroyed his own temple. But here they're saying, God, the enemies have insulted you. They have wronged you. They've entered your temple, they've defiled it. They've turned your city into ruins. They have left your servants' corpses for food for for the fowl of heaven and flesh of your faithful for the wild beasts. In other words, this is a a grave insult to God. And the idea is they're trying to get God to respond to this insult. By the way, leaving the corpses is one step worse than just killing them, because of course the the improper disposal of a dead body is something very negative in the Bible to us also today. And here, not only are they dead, but they're left lying for the birds of prey and the wild animals to eat them. Their blood was shed like water around Jerusalem with none to bury them. So it's their flesh and their blood, it's not buried. We have become the butt, the cherpa of our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. Again, you've met that before. The onlookers look and mock the destroyed Judah. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your indignation blaze like fire? We're going to meet this in, in chapter five. We've met many times God's anger blazing. Pour out your fury on the nations that do not know you. This line we say in the Haggadah, um, uh, the nations who do not know you, that is, who do not recognize that you are the powerful God of the universe, upon the kingdoms that do not invoke your name, for they have devoured Jacob and desolated his home. Do not hold our former iniquities against us. This is an admission of sin, but a plea, a kind of indirect plea for forgiveness. Let your compassion come swiftly toward us, but we have sunk very low. If you remember in chapter three, there the speaker was sure that God was compassionate uh, and that his, his compassion was never used up. That's what he thought one moment, but the next moment he said, you know, we ask forgiveness, but you don't give it to us. Um, Help us, O God, our deliverer, for the sake of the glory of your name. That, that's to us now like a throwaway phrase, which we don't think about. But they're not asking to be saved for their own merit. They're asking to be saved because it's for God's reputation. If God cannot protect his people, what kind of God is he? If the If the other people in the world see that God... Cannot protect his people, they'll think he's weak, and that they're stronger let uh, Let the nations not say where is their God before our eyes. Let it be known among the nations that you avenge the spilled blood of your servants. This is the idea that the that the enemies deserve some punishment that the groans of the prisoners that's the captives, the exiles reach you. Reprieve those condemned to death as befits your great strength. Pay back our neighbors sevenfold for the abuse they have flung at you, O Lord. Then we, your people, the flock you shepherd, shall glorify you forever. For all time we shall tell your praises. This is a typical of um, in uh, prayers, um, pleading God to save them. If you do this, we'll, we'll praise you. For what you do, um, uh, a, a quick look at part of Psalm 44. It's an interesting psalm. It, I, I skip the beginning here. Um, it reviews the good things in the past history that God did for Israel. You gave it, and then it continues. You gave us victory over our foes, etc. In God we glory at all times and praise Your no, name unceasingly. Yet. You have rejected and disgraced us. You do not go with our armies. You make us retreat before our foe. Our enemies plunder us at will. You let them devour us like sheep. Before the people were the sheep of God, who was their shepherd. Here, they are devoured by the enemy like animals devour sheep. You disperse us among the nations as you send us into exile. You sell your people for no fortune. In other words, we're not like even like slaves that are bought and sold. You just you give us away. <laughs> um, you make us the butt of our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. It should all sound familiar to you? I am always aware of my disgrace. I am wholly covered with shame. Um, I'll skip. A little, Um, all this has come upon us. This is a very interesting verse. And this is what makes me think that this psalm actually is is a psalm uh, talking about the exiles. All this has come upon us, yet we have not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts have not gone astray, nor have our feet swerved from your path. Now, it would be hard to say this because, of course, the people did sin, and that's why they got the punishment. But they're saying, we really are true to you. And I think in Babylonian exile, they were not idolatrous. Um, um, you don't know that for sure, but um, that's what it seems to be saying here. Though you cast us, crush us to where the sea monster is, as to the depth of the seas, to the deepest darkness, So These are symbols of the exile. If we forget the name of our God and spread forth our hands in prayer to a foreign God, God would surely know it. He knows everything. It is for your sake. I don't actually like that translation. The word is alecha, because of you. It's your fault, God, that we are slain all day long, that we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Rouse yourself. Don't sleep. God, of course, doesn't sleep. Awaken. Get into action. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face, ignoring our affliction and distress? We lie prostrate in the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise and help us. Redeem us as befits your faithfulness. This is my entree into... um, chapter five, which is a similar kind of prayer, Um, I would say, and if I have to assign this to a a context, that this is not the exile speaking, it's the people left behind. There were survivors who were not exiled, who remained in Judah. It could be anyone, any Judean, but it it seems to to me to, to fit that. So let's look at chapter five now. Zahor. Um, The words zechor and shachach, we learn in our dictionaries, mean remember and forget. But when we ask God to remember something, it's not because he forgot something. God does not forget. It, it, it means to ignore. Um, zechor means to pay attention to, and shachach means to ignore. So it's saying... Pay attention, O Lord, to what has befallen us. Um, Habita, look, see our disgrace. Um, And what's described here is the conditions um, after the battle is over. Our our heritage, our nachala, nachala is ancestral land, has passed to Zarin, Czar uh, means, a, 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 alien sounds like Martians to me, I would say outsiders. Um, it means anyone not of the family. Uh, what we're talking about is land passing to um, other people. Uh, in, in, uh, normally, land would pass within the family. Here it's saying our our ancestral land has gone to people not of our family. Our homes have gone to Nahreem, to foreigners. And that's indeed, they have lost control of their ancestral estates. It doesn't belong to them anymore. It belongs to the Babylonians. Um, and this refers on, not only to private uh, holdings, but to the country as a whole, because Israel is the Nachala of God or the Nachala of, of, is, of, uh, of Israel, of the people of Israel. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. And we're, we're deprived of the head of household, that we've lost our land. The, the, the household has become disrupted. It no longer has a head of household. We must pay to drink our own water, obtain our own wood, at a price. Uh, Wood and water were free. Okay. And the people who were the drawers of water and the gatherers of wood in ancient Israel were the lowest ranking people. It's like saying we have to pay for the air we breathe. Um, Things that used to be free or cheap are now expensive. This is inflation because of scarcity. Uh, We are we, uh, we are hotly pursued, exhausted, give, given no rest. We hold out a hand to Egypt, to Assyria for a fill of bread. Assyria and Egypt were were the old empires. Um, Egypt, of course, had been around for a long time, and um, these were. It, this is a kind of a um, a, a conventional way of of saying other empires. The Assyrian empire was gone by this time. It had been absorbed by by the Babylonian empire. Egypt is still there. Um, uh, Ironically, also, Assyria and Egypt had enslaved the people. Egypt, of course, at the very beginning, before Yitzhiat Mitzrayim, and Assyria uh, was the power that conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and exiled its inhabitants and, and tried to get Judah, but was foiled, didn't quite make it to Judah, so Judah was spared. But what they're saying is we, we look to other nations to help us out, and Egypt and Assyria are the, the, like the models of, of the big empires. Uh, the next verse is also a little tricky. Our fathers sinned and are no more, that is our ancestors, kat'u, the Enam, Um, I mentioned before that avon can mean not only sin and guilt, but also punishment. And the question here is, does the current generation feel it's free from sin and it's paying the price of earlier generations? Or, um, uh, uh, equally possible, are they saying... The sin started with our fathers and it accumulated. And finally, uh, the punishment is coming in our time. This has been read both ways. Um, I don't know that I would think they had the chutzpah to say that they didn't sin. Um, But what they're saying is the sin is nothing new. there's, There's been a lot of sin over a lot of generations in Israel. And now the time has come to pay the price. Avadi slaves, which means the lackeys of the Babylonian king, um, because uh, you know Babylon, Babylonia put officials to um, over the province of Yehud, um, mm-hmm. and then the Persians did also. Uh, And there's none to rescue us. And we can't break free of this empire, which now controls us. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. Cherev. uh, Cherev is also related to the word that means drought, dryness. Um, And I think, I I, I like better the drought of the wilderness, a desert-like drought. In, In other words, they can't Get any food because of the of the drought of the of the the lack of produce. Our skin glows like an oven with fever of the famine. They have ravished women in Zion, maidens in the town of Judah. This is, Nashim um, b'Tzion and Betulot ba'Areh Yehuda. Interesting. Nashim is all the women. Betulot often translated as virgins. It, it really means women of marriageable age who are not yet married. So on one hand, it goes from all women to a narrower group of women. On the other hand, it goes from Jerusalem to Are Yehuda, spreads out through the whole country. This also happens in wars, even today, women get raped. This particular, you know, it's a gendered kind of suffering. Uh, But it also, by the way, it harms the men, too. It's not just the women that that it harms. Princes have been hanged by them. No respect has been shown to elders. Young men must carry millstones, and youth stagger under loads of wood. These are things that animals, burden-bearing animals would do. And now people are having to do the work that, for instance, oxen and donkeys uh, used to do. The old men are gone from the gate, the young men from, from their music. Uh, the gate is like a central meeting place. It's a place where business was conducted, where um, the courts, uh, legal matters were were uh, taken care of, where people met, because it's the entrance to the city going in and going out. Now, of course, there's no one there and the city is locked. Gone is the joy of our hearts. Our dancing is turned to mourning. It's not only that we can't have fun and party anymore. What this really is talking about is the temple music. Uh, The music that used to go on for ritual purposes is silence. There's no temple. The crown has fallen from our head. That is, there is no king. The king is gone. We are no longer an independent monarchy. Woe to us that we have sinned. Here is a clear acknowledgement of the sin and, and its punishment. Because of this, our hearts are sick. Because of these, our eyes are dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals, the word is shualim, foxes or jackals, uh, roam around there As it's a ruin. The temple is a ruin, and the jackals just roam around over it. But despite the fact that the temple, which is God's seat, God's footstool, is gone, but you, O oh Lord, Techev Leolam Techev, you live forever. You sit on your throne forever. Kisachad Leor Vador. Your throne endures forever. This is a very big theological step. Even without the temple, God reigns. Since God, you're still reigning. You're still sovereign of the world. Why do you forever ignore us, abandon us for all time? You saw this in the psalm also let us come back to you, O oh, oh Lord um and we'll, we'll we would love to come back, oh that we could come back make it like it was before. return us to the way it was before this all happened. Um, the book goes on with a um with a negative, osma but instead, you have rejected us, bitterly raged against us. It, it, it ends on a note of, of despair, but books that end on a note of despair, and when we read them publicly, we, we read the penultimate verse, which is better. Hashiveinu lecha kekedem. Okay, I I left some time for questions or reactions now. So now it's your turn.
0: I solved all your problems for you.
2: I, I hope that when when you read those of you who will read this book tomorrow night, will um, uh, appreciate it um, uh, for its well for, for everything it said. I've tried to give you a very quick overview, skipping all the difficult words and <laughs> and things like that. But I think that you. I hope that you understand how moving the book is. Um, it's it's about the worst catastrophe, certainly in ancient times that happened to Judah, which changed everything after it, It changed the whole way we we, we looked at the world. It changed theology. Um, It changed, let let me just say that um, before that, earlier, each God was kind of attached to his country. And Israel had that, feeling too. There was a God of Israel, and he was in Israel, he protected Israel, etc. The Egyptians had their God. That was fine. Uh, It was right for them to worship their God. But when the people were exiled, suddenly God became universal too. God was in Babylonia with them. This is a whole new way of looking at the world. God was sovereign over all the other gods of the world who are really non-gods. And it's because of the exile that this idea came. Um, If not, it would have like been the end of Judaism. Uh, But with this idea, uh, Judaism was able to continue and to develop even further. And even after the return, there was still a diaspora um, and forever after there was a diaspora, Um, but it didn't matter. God is God of the universe and he is all over. Um, I like to think that he did finally answer us, um, even after a long time. Even if the Book of Lamentations didn't live to see it, so thank you. Ah, question: God doesn't speak in, in Lamentations. Um, no, he doesn't. He he is described, or he is spoken to, he uh, is addressed, but correct he doesn't answer that's 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 an interesting point um he doesn't answer he doesn't respond
1: i don't know if you saw the second part of the question but uh, this person was wondering if any if we have any other books that um imagine a response from god or imagine the same oh there, there are there God's are uh,
2: there are parts of the Bible there are psalms I can't think of one right now where God speaks um uh, but not in this not in this context not, uh, you know in in other contexts not not as a response to um to you know for to the people asking him to end the exile no, and that's I think part of the effect of it is. You Keep asking, but <laughs> there's no answer.
0: Um, okay,
2: you know, where the when we repeat um, verse 21 after verse 22, I mean, is that a relatively modern thing, or is that no? No, it's so, um, it's actually written in a lot of Bibles. I don't know if it's written in like medieval manuscripts, but it's also after the book of Isaiah and Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. It's just, you don't like to end on a down note, uh, especially in a public reading. So you you go back one verse, which is usually a little better, and, and it's just a nicer way to end a public reading. It doesn't mean, I mean, the book was composed, I mean, it's it's i guess appropriate that acha ends with this you know lama <laughs> Tishka uh, excuse me uh, that you despise us uh forever um because that's that's really what the book is saying um but again it's it's i don't know when the convention began but it's not a recent thing isaiah 40 is 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 um, what we read on Shabbat Nachamu. Uh, Isaiah is it, it, it is in a sense a response. Isaiah is speaking to the Babylonian exiles, and he is telling them, "Yes, God is going to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, the, you know, things will be restored." And it's Isaiah especially who makes the point that God is, is the sovereign of the universe. Uh, anybody who could re- create the world could certainly defeat the Babylonians. Uh, and he will do that. And Isaiah also is, is the one who says, you sin, but you pay double for your sin. And, and, and that's the idea you get here too. They deserved it, but they didn't deserve that much. Um, and so the idea is eventually that God will rescue them, will, will bring them back. Um, so Isaiah is is comforting the people in exile. Um, uh, yeah, it, and it's nice that we read that on Shabbat after Tisha And And by the way, it starts out Nahum. It's 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 not clear who's speaking. It's plural. You guys comfort my people. It's like Isaiah is hearing. God talking to people, telling them to comfort his people. So here God is offering comfort through through Isaiah, presumably other prophets. Okay. Hey,
1: uh, if those are all the questions, thank you so much, Professor Berlin. Uh, thank you for all for coming. Series. And thank you so much to everyone who joined us. Uh, just before we close up, I just wanted to say we have um, you can register now for our uh, Tisha B'Av programming this Thursday. Um, we're gonna have a guided recitation of keynote in the morning, uh, and then we're gonna have a class with Dr. Dror Bondi on Yemiahou. Um And yeah, we're so please um, see our website to sign up for that. And again, thank you so much. This is the last class of our summer's month, which has been really wonderful. So thank you so much to everyone who has joined and contributed and again, Thank you so much, Dr. Blinn, and hoping to learn with all of you again soon.
0: Thank you, thank you.